Welcome to the Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast, the podcast bringing you the latest on food, fiber, and forestry research from the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Hello and welcome to the first episode of our Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast. I'm Nick Kordsmeyer, Director of Communications for the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, which is the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. In this first episode, you'll hear from our science writer, John Lovett, who spoke with the Center for Arkansas Farms and Food about the importance of educating the next generation of farmers. I spoke with Jennifer Acuff, Assistant Professor of Food Microbiology and Safety in the Department of Food Science, to talk about some of the science behind common food safety recommendations, especially with Thanksgiving just around the corner. And Fred Miller, our science editor, sat down with Casey Owens, the Novus International Professor of Poultry Science, to discuss her research program and the progress she's made towards fighting chicken meat quality defects like woody breast. With that, I'll pass it on to John, and thank you again for joining us on the Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast. Small farms are an integral part of the food supply chain, providing nutrient-rich foods on a local level. But small farms and farming on the whole have changed in recent years, according to Heather Friedrich, program manager for the Center for Arkansas Farms and Food. Uh, farming has changed so much in, in the past you know, 50, 70, even 20 years. We don't have those generational farms that we've had in the past where that knowledge was passed you know, from father to son or you know, grandparent to grandchild or you, know, from your, you learn from your neighbors. That's where the Center for Arkansas Farms and Food comes in. The center, called CAF for short, has a mission to train the next generation of farmers, especially farmers who don't necessarily come from a farming background. It's hard for someone who is not connected to those systems to learn from someone like that, that does have that, you know, years of experience behind them. CAF is a service center of the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the U of A System Division of Agriculture. It supports local food entrepreneurs and increases small farm viability through experiential learning, Friedrich said. CAF offers two major programs, a beginner's farm school and an apprenticeship program. Applications for the 2022 apprenticeship program are due by December 1st, 2021. But if you, you know, are someone that does want to go into farming, you do want to produce fruits and vegetables because that's what we're really focusing on. Uh, if you do want to grow, how, and you're new to this kind of career path, like how do you, how do you get that knowledge and experience and those connect, build those connections? And so, you know, those are, are some of the big reasons that we developed the center because we do see that there is a big need to, you know, foster that next generation of farmers. CAF works closely with the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust and the Northwest Arkansas Food Conservancy to connect new farmers with land resources where they can grow food and help get the food to market in grocery stores and in restaurants. The food system has a lot of different key players. Um, there's a lot of moving parts and pieces. And so for just us to, you know, focus on the farmer side of things is, is would be kind of an incomplete picture. You know, once we do have graduates of the program, we also need you know, land for them to farm on, and we need markets for them to plug into. And so by partnering with other resources that are supporting farmers, um, you know, it, we just increase their chances of success. Friedrich emphasized that successful farming depends on more than just working with the land. There's also a substantial business side to being a farmer that requires knowledge of marketing, networking, and bookkeeping. It's just critical for farmers to, 
to get experience and get a glimpse into that side of the operation because a lot of farmers go into this because they really, you know, they're passionate about working with the land and they, you know, passionate about working with the plants, but those business components are a little bit more challenging for them. It's less natural. The Center for Arkansas Farms and Food created a curriculum for their farm school students that calls for creation of a business plan that helps build their brand online. We have a a really strong track um, in our farm school that really um, helps these aspiring farmers to learn what the business side of, you know, running a farm looks like. CAF business instructor Brooke Anderson said business management is integrated into every part of owning a farm. Over the past two years of the COVID pandemic, more people have shopped online, so farmers also need to know how to market their goods through the internet and on social media platforms. When we're working with these new beginner farmers, we're really focused on making sure that they understand um, what their mission is with farming, why are they wanting to do this, and then helping them communicate that to their customers. So that brings in that marketing side of things where um, they're communicating um, what they're growing and then having the customer with that feedback of um, where they want to buy that um, so that they can better um, strategize on from a business perspective. The Center for Arkansas Farms and Food recently graduated its first class of five farm school students and just wrapped up the second season of apprenticeship. Anderson said most of the participants are planning on continuing their agricultural journey. Most of the graduates of the program are going to be continuing their agricultural experience, whether that's with farm ownership, um, a few people have started leasing some land and growing, um, or also managing farms for other people. So it's really exciting to see their farm journeys really taking off. Anyone interested in learning more about CAF programs, please visit caff.uada.edu. Applications for the 2022 apprenticeship program are due on December 1st, 2021. With frozen turkeys, leftovers, and homemade pies, Thanksgiving is the perfect time to talk about food safety. Food safety expert and microbiologist Jennifer Acuff said food safety is critical to keeping consumers safe. We all eat food and they're all subject to some kind of contamination or risk every now and then. So my research gets to kind of pick apart those risks and try to figure out how we can protect consumers. Acuff is an assistant professor with the Department of Food Science for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture and the Dale Bumpers College of Food, Agriculture, and Life Sciences at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. In addition to extension and teaching appointments, she conducts research for the Division of Agriculture's research arm, the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station. ACUF's current research focus is on food safety, especially in low-moisture foods. That can include anything from powders to nuts, dried fruits, um, and even spices. And so I look at how bacteria are going to contaminate these foods and then how they survive on them, um, as well as how we can remove them uh, once they're there. Uh, So a lot of my research involves um, a really kind of interesting group of foods that people don't necessarily assume would be risky, and I'm not saying they should, but there's always an inherent risk. Acuff said her food safety tips have made her popular among family and friends. It's fun. Uh, it's fun because, you know, it's it, it feels like so many parts of my job are, are fun facts um, that I take 
with me everywhere. And so people like to ask me all the time about um, eating organic or local produce and, you know, what temperatures to cook their meats to. And I get asked all the time about my food safety tips. Um, I think sometimes it's a bit of a buzzkill if you're at a dinner with a group of people and then you're explaining to them why the thing that they're eating might (laughs) be unsafe. So I always have to check myself and and remember not to be the party pooper. But um, I I really enjoy um, talking to people about food safety. I mean, it's been a passion of mine for a really long time. So it's just fun to share that. Those fun facts underscore the importance of consumers taking charge of food safety in their lives. It's important that everybody knows what food safety really is because it's a really multidisciplinary um, interactive discipline and concept. And so it involves a wide variety of people um, and, you know, I think the most important part of that puzzle is just about um, the consumers. Making sure that everybody understands what they can control and, and what part they play in that puzzle is really important to me. While food safety is important year-round, Thanksgiving does carry some particular food safety risks. Thawing that frozen turkey is one of them. The safest way to thaw turkey is doing it well in advance and ahead of time. Um, so. The best way to thaw is probably in the fridge for several days. So there are calculators online that can actually help you figure out, okay, how long does this need to thaw in my fridge if it's, you know, 10 pounds versus 20 pounds, because that's a big difference. And so, um, you know, the weight of the turkey impacts how quickly it will thaw. Um, Also thawing it in the sink with very cold water can work, but um, a lot of times in holidays we're preparing a lot of foods, there's a lot of traffic in the kitchen, and a turkey taking up a whole sink is a little inconvenient. So I don't really recommend that way just for convenience sake. One particularly risky way to thaw the turkey is to leave it out at room temperature. The outsides are going to thaw first, and the outsides are going to thaw and get to the point that they're at room temperature. And um, we have something called the danger zone in food safety and food microbiology and that refers to the temperature at which bacteria are most happily growing so when you thaw turkey at room temperature the outsides of it and then you know gradually toward the inside can get as high as as complete room temperature around 70 to 80 degrees fahrenheit and the danger zone is 40 to 140 degrees fahrenheit so it sits in that danger zone and allows any bacteria that are on the raw turkey to grow to really high numbers. So we want to make sure that however you thought, you keep it below refrigeration temperatures, which is below 40 degrees. Acuff said there are many intrinsic and extrinsic factors, like oxygen, water, and nutrient availability, and temperature, that affect the growth of bacteria. But temperature is one of the easiest for consumers to control. A lot of the foodborne pathogens that we will get sick from uh, really enjoy our body temperature, right? And that kind of makes sense that they're they're functioning very well at our body temperature, and that's how they get us sick so easily. And so they're already, you know, accessing nutrients um, from that food. And if the temperature is just right, or if the oxygen levels are the right um, for, right for them to grow, then they can really go wild in that environment. With that in mind, Acuff said you really don't want to leave those hot or cold leftovers out all day. So a lot of people have um, kind of almost a family tradition with holiday leftovers, and that is leaving them out all day and letting everybody, you know, come by and graze on them throughout and watch the football games or the parades and everything. Um, And that's not the best practice. If that food came out of the oven two hours ago, it needs to go into the fridge pretty quickly. Um, So that's really what we recommend for storing leftovers is get them into containers where maybe if we're talking about a really thick stew, get it into a shallow container because it'll cool down quicker. Um, If we're talking about any kind of 
food that's being handled, especially like a turkey that's been cut up. Um, a lot of times people aren't wearing gloves in their own kitchen, right? And so they're handling the turkey and cutting it up. And you might have washed your hands, but um, your hands aren't sterile. So they're not completely without bacteria. And so as you, as you handle that turkey, after about two hours or so, some of the bacteria that came from your hands might have grown to an, an amount that could really get somebody sick. So um, refrigerating leftovers after about two hours, even though everybody wants to keep them out you know, for as long as possible, is really the best way to make sure you don't have some unhappy guests later. Baked goods, however, often fall into another category of foods called shelf-stable foods. The environmental conditions in these foods inhibit bacterial growth, Acuff said. What contributes to this shelf-stable label um, has to do with things like water content um, or what we call water activity um, and also um, pH, so how much acid is, is there, um, and also um, kind of desiccation. So water activity and desiccation kind of go hand in hand. So if we're talking about a loaf of bread, right, that doesn't have a lot of moisture in it. Um, and so it can sit out on the countertop, though you might have some mold issues later, right? Because if you leave it uncovered, um, eventually mold can grow. But in terms of bacteria, they're not going to like that environment very much because there's not enough water for them to be happy and grow. Um, and so baked goods, um, like breads, have that kind of desiccated aspect of it. Other desserts and baked goods, like jams or fruit pies, may have a high moisture content but are still considered shelf-stable because they have a low water activity. Water activity refers to the water that is free um, in the food um, and not bound by something else. But something like a jam or jelly that has a high sugar content, that sugar actually binds to the water molecules, and when it binds to it, the bacteria can't access it. If it doesn't have a high enough sugar content, though, these rules don't apply. Pumpkin pie, for example, might need to be refrigerated. I personally prefer my pumpkin pie refrigerated and cold anyway, so I don't usually even have this problem. Um, pumpkin pie is a little bit different. It doesn't have quite as high of a sugar content, right? If you think about the ingredients, the pumpkin pie filling itself might have some sugar, but not nearly as much as like a pecan pie. And so I can't give you the exact water activity levels of those, but I would recommend keeping the pumpkin pie refrigerated. Um, but I think if the sugar content is high enough, you might not need to. But um, if it's got whipped cream on it, I'd definitely get it into the fridge. Acuff said that using a tip-sensitive meat thermometer and avoiding cross-contamination between ready-to-eat foods and raw foods are two more critical food safety recommendations. But one of the most important tips is to remember a skill we all learned at the start of the pandemic. It has to be mentioned. I can't overstate the importance of hand hygiene. During the pandemic, it seems like we saw a potential dip in foodborne illness because people were finally washing their hands the way that we should all be washing them all the time. And so I think we're starting to kind of slacken on that a little bit as we're kind of coming on to hopefully the other side of this health crisis. And so I'm hoping that people still keep their hand washing habits so that we don't see a huge uptick. There's a lot of foodborne illness that just gets transmitted from person to person, and food plays a part in that, um, but using good hand hygiene can go a really long way in protecting your family. So stay safe out there, Thanksgiving feasters, and thank you to Jennifer Acuff for sharing your expertise. For more than 20 years, the main thrust of Casey Owens' research has been improving meat quality for the poultry industry. And that's good, because during that time, the poultry industry has risen to the challenges of increasing consumer preferences for more and bigger chicken meat and growing export demands to feed a hungry world. But that growth has come at a cost. 
Processors are seeing increases in meat defects that cost the industry millions. Dr. Owens is the Novus International Professor of Poultry Science at the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture, and the Center of Excellence for Poultry Science. She investigates meat quality defects in broiler meat, building a base of knowledge that will help develop novel solutions for this segment of America's food supply. Dr. Owens, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me here today. I look forward to this opportunity. Great. I wanted to talk with you today about uh, your research in meat quality. And I wonder if you could just uh, start off by just kind of giving us an overview of the issue of meat quality that you're dealing with and why it's important in the industry. Yes, so my area of research is with poultry meat quality. I specifically have been looking at broilers, so chicken, um, over the last oh gosh, almost 20 years. Um, I never exclude turkeys, but I get the opportunity to work with broilers a lot more. And so um, a lot of my research has gravitated towards quality and looking at quality defects and ways to prevent that or to assess it in order to um, have a quality control type system or use that in research or whatnot. So more recently, um, in the last, I'd say, 10 years, we've been looking at uh, white striping, um, woody breast, and some other issues that are affecting meat texture and some of the composition of the meat. Can you tell us a little bit about how those meat texture defects uh, would affect consumer uh, enjoyment of, of chicken meat? Sure. So white striping doesn't affect the consumer appeal in terms of eating quality to a great degree. Um, it can maybe lead towards less juiciness, um, though we haven't really assessed that in a great deal. I don't know that a consumer could really tell. It could affect yields um, by decreasing water holding capacity. Uh, with woody breast, it's generally we have a little bit more fat and connective tissue in that type of breast meat, and so um, in more severe cases, when we have more of that connective tissue present, it can give the consumers um, where they perceive the meat texture is um, kind of chewy or kind of a, a gristly, just something with connective tissue in there. And so kind of changes the texture from a normal um, chicken te- texture that just is typically tender. And uh, in how, what ways then does it affect the poultry industry in terms of uh, the value of their product uh, or how it affects their, their business in that regard? So woody breast, um, we can observe that in the industry in different degrees of severity, meaning that um, in the most severe cases, there's just a lot more connective tissue, a little bit more fat, um, and so forth. And that can lead to those um, texture qualities that are negative to the consumers and so the instance of that um, product has been up to upwards of 20 percent in certain plants Um, certainly not that high in other plants sometimes it's um, related to the size of the bird that's produced and um, in those most severe cases it has the worst textural changes associated with them and so Oftentimes, plants will um, divert that type of product away from whole muscle um, products and so into something like chicken nuggets or um, something in that manner so that the, the textural, textural issues is not as, impar- as apparent but as it would be in a whole muscle product. 
And that, but that, uh, as far as industries perspective, that's a lower value product for them then, isn't it? Yes, potentially. Usually whole muscle products are more premium mm-hmm. um, in nature. Um, but we, the industry certainly does a lot of batter and breading of products. And so there's, there's um, different avenues for meat to go to fulfill the orders. And so if we can divert some of the most severe cases into these types of products, then the textural issues are not as noticeable as it would be in whole, whole muscle products. When it comes to uh, then causes of these issues, I know you've been looking into that, mm-hmm. uh, and you at least have some suspects, if, if not some outright uh, uh, perpetrators. Uh, so, yeah. what are you uh, what are you looking at in terms of causes of some of these defects? Yeah. So the so we've been like I said, we've been studying this for about ten years. Um, really saw the white striping first, and then woody breast came a few years later, uh, where we saw more of that issue and during this last 10 years or so birds have been growing a little bit bigger um, because of longer durations of growth but also um, birds the broilers that we have in the industry do grow um, fast um, and very efficiently uh, speaking so there's always going to be protein turnover in the muscle and what will happen is that um, kind of in a nutshell is that that the when there is protein degradation, such as the, the muscle proteins, um, if the muscle can't repair itself soon enough, then it can be those, that muscle protein can be uh, replaced with fat and connective tissue um, to fill in some voids. And so that's why we get those compositional changes. Um, is that like scarring, a kind of scarring, or is it something different? I wouldn't necessarily say scarring, but it is filling in those voids um, rather than um, having enough time for myofibrillar tissue, like the muscle tissue, to actually be repaired. Um, then those um, other constituents of the meat kind of fill in. Um, so there's also a lot of research out in the, in, um, in the research field to assess really the uh, mechanisms of, behind why these changes are occurring. So some of it has to do with oxidative stress. Um, we haven't really found the exact reasons behind it, um, but there's a lot of research going in those areas, and some of it may be genetic, some of it may be growth-related, uh, but we're trying to get to those reasons of, so that we can, um, we as in the industry can help reduce the problems. And I think we've seen some improvement over the last couple of years of decreased incidence um, in the industry as well. Is there other areas uh, or uh, effects from stress, like if the birds are stressed from heat or uh, discomfort of any kind, or is that? No, really, if, uh, the impact of stress on the bird um, would actually potentially improve it. Improve it because if, is that right? if body weight is decreased um, and stress normally reduces body weight, um, then generally we'll, sl- we'll see a little bit less of that severe incidence. Then can you tell me uh, in terms of some of the things you're thinking about as solutions for this, uh, some things that, you, that uh, are on the horizon right. that are potential ways to resolve this types of defect? So I know the breeders are interested in um, looking at this, and that's kind of out of my area. Um, and, and also from a management system uh, nutritionists have been looking at ways to feed the birds differently and usually in, um, results in slowing the bird down and increasing the, um, well, decreasing the efficiency of that bird, which is 
you want to increase the efficiency overall. So decreasing it leads to having um, a lower bird weight um, or more feed associated with it. Um, so that's just a management tool. I'm not a nutritionist either, so I'm not really in those fields. Um, but from the processing standpoint, we are looking at ways to detect the problem. Um, right now they're having to sort. Um, if plants are sorting, they are doing it by hand. Um, and if we are able to develop a system that they could do rapidly in the plants, that could assist, um, especially if there are some customers that have a um, higher standard or want less of the woody breasts in their products. Um, so some of those, in, we're trying to mimic what we would do with hand palpation or feeling those fillets uh, by hand. And some of that can be used by instruments like uh, compression force where we measure, we have a force reader that will compress that fillet and we get a force measurement um, that's related to the compression of that fillet. Um, other things that, that we have looked into is looking at further processed, further processed items. So we've been looking at chicken nuggets, for example, like a comminuted type of product. That's why I said earlier that if you can divert this whole muscle product into a ground type product, then the effects are not as great from a sensory aspect. Um, and we've also looked at it in terms of used in use in deli loaves. Um, and those can be more chunked in form. So some whole muscle pieces, but smaller, and you've got it mixed in with some normal meat. And so the effects aren't as great. And so we've looked at multiple things in, in that nature. Um, I have been involved in some nutritional-related studies, um, but it's still kind of a management tool. And if we usually if something's going to help um, reduce what he breasts it, generally will reduce the weight of the bird. Um, and so if we can find something that does not affect the weight but reduces woody breast, then that's going to be um, a good potential tool. Uh, I guess uh, we should let folks know that these defects in the meat don't present, in, I mean, I'd like you to speak to this because you're the expert. I'm just winging it here, uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, but uh, these defects in the meat, they're not really uh, – of a, a health concern for the consumer, right? They're not going to, uh, there's not anything in the, in the meat because of these defects that is harmful or unhealthy for uh, consumers. Right, so there's, there's no food safety concerns. This is really a quality issue. So I said the composition does change, um, but it's a very small change, um, especially with like white striping. We can see increased fat levels. It's still a relatively small change, um, you know, maybe a 2% increase, um, like from 4% or t to 6% or, and I'm, I don't have any numbers exactly in front of me, but um, it's not an overwhelming change to that. But the, so the composition will change slightly, but not from a food safety standpoint, is there going to be an issue? Um, there have been some studies to look at some of the micro microbiological effects, um, and there's been no um, evidence to show that that there's any harm associated with them. Okay, good. Um, what are some of the, uh, I guess, let me start again, because I was about to ask you a question you already answered, <laughs> uh, because you're that much ahead of me, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, anyway, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the, the research you're doing with accelerometers. Mm -hmm. And uh, and these accelerometers, they're basically an, uh, an electronic instrument 
that's commonly found in smartphones, smartwatches, and this kind of thing, uh, fitness um, devices. Uh, isn't that correct? That's yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, how are they uh, being applied uh, to this research in, in poultry meat quality? Um, and what are you looking for it uh, okay. to do? So, um, I began a collaboration with um, some folks in the computer science engineering group. So, Dr. King Ha Lee um, is a computer engineer in, in with the University of Arkansas, and then Dr. Yan Hong in animal science um, was involved in, in this collaboration as well. And so, we developed a proposal to look at these accelerometers. Um, to assess the meat um, and to to assess really the vibration patterns of the meat. So when we apply some sort of force or movement to a table that the fillet is sitting on, how does that vibration come through the fillet? So that's one aspect of looking at it in the on a debone meat kind of um, platform as a, as a sort of detection during the yes, processing to look at it as far as detection so this is very early stages um, of the work that we're doing and so yeah the accelerometers are used in like uh, a fitbit or apple watch or on your iphone and really some of our preliminary work came from using an iphone um, but it's there's a lot of data that comes from that, and so it was really nice to work with the computer science folks. <laughs> they really know those aspects, but I try to apply it in a way that could potentially lead to detection methods in the plant. We've also tried to look at detecting this in a live bird, and so that's a little bit more challenging, and so the, the results of this um, are really still underway. Uh, we don't have enough um, research to even give you any results at this time, but if that was if we were able to use accelerometers to detect it in the live bird, it could potentially help breeders or in research settings. It's not anything a producer would use if they've got a full house of birds to go through and detect, um, but it could be a tool in selection procedures and so and so forth. So they could, uh, say, weed out the birds that are, uh, where they're detecting defects while they're still alive mm-hmm. and know that those wouldn't necessarily be a good cross for breeding. Right. If it were to, to be in genetic families or something, and it's not even, I don't even know that we know if it, how heritable it is in terms of, is it in this genetic family? Is it in this other genetic family? Because it, we see this problem in most broilers across the United States and the world, regardless of what um, strain, you know, there's two primary breeders in the in the world and so uh, we see it across the board so it's not not that it's in this particular breed versus this other breed um, and commercial broilers really are using the same breed they're just different families um, but there's two major companies out there that are used so so it uh, it might help the breeders in terms of maybe finding a way to reduce or eliminate the problem yes. but it's it's not really going to help in terms of identifying existing breeds or, or uh, it would not really be useful to a producer that has a full house of birds that are going right. to market let's put it that way he wouldn't want to be going around strapping those on their no. wrists right now. right for example yeah for sure yeah. but that would also be looking at vibration patterns that come through the bird but it is more complicated with the live bird because um, there's these 
larger movements like a wing flap or respiration even, but we're trying to get to these minute movements through the of the breast fillet because um, the breast fillet, when it has a lot of collagen, connective tissue in it, it has different um, vibration, a vibration pattern to it. It's a little stiffer, harder, more firm, and that's kind of the characteristics that we look for when we are palpating that fillet. Um, is that that characteristically characteristically has a harder touch to it. And those instruments could measure those differences, and if you could identify those patterns in particular, then you would have a way of detecting a a better method, maybe a more precise method of detecting these issues. Right, right. Interesting. Uh, So what's down the road for you in terms of research in this area? Uh, What are your next steps? Well, we're still working on the accelerometer research, and then uh, we also, in bio and ag engineering here um, with the Division of Agriculture, we have Dr. Dongyi Wang, who's just joined the faculty, and his expertise is in image analysis and um, robotics. And so we've been working with him, and I've actually introduced him to the computer science group that I've been working with um, to see if we can collaborate on a bigger project. Um, and if we have the ability to even measure the amount of force um, on the flay, just like our our stationary system that we can use when we measure compression force, if he can use that with his robotic arm, then that's another way to possibly use that in the plant to detect that because um, it mimics our hand palpation mm-hmm. systems. Um, Last year we did, or the last couple of years, I should say, we developed some relationships between carcass shape features, used image analysis to detect woody breast in the fillets. And so we received a patent on that. And um, we're kind of in the midst of, of moving that forward um, as we go forward. We have to find a, yeah. a collaborative partner. Um, can, can you describe a little bit more about how that works, how the image analysis can detect woody breast sure. uh, from a... Uh, a non-defect containing Right, right. So there's already vision grading systems out in the industry that look for um, size and shape and defects, maybe like a missing wing or um, to help grade carcasses. That's already existing um, technology. And so what we did in our lab was to look at the shape features of the breast on the bird. So sometimes that breast um, has more like a U-shape. Now, Remember that the birds are really hanging upside down. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's kind of a rounded shape of the, at the top of the breast when it's hanging upside down versus more of a pointed shape. And so the rounded shape uh, breasts generally ha- have a higher um, probability to be woody breast than more of the pointed shape breast. And so that just goes back to um, fillet yield and, and how much yield is on that bird and um, how much it's grown and, and developed in terms of the breast meat. Mm-hmm. And so those larger breasts are tend to be a little bit more woody um, or have the potential to be more woody. And so we looked at thousands of um, f- images and we compared those to the, the, um, the debone breast fillet scores. We have a scoring system that we use and we found some really good relationships in terms of predictability um, for that particular system. And so the goal would be to incorporate um, the algorithm or the mathematical part that I'm not very sure about, but those (laughs) relationships um, into existing vision systems to potentially sort 
or at least give a heads up to the debone operations that, hey, we're going to have a little bit more woody breast today, or potentially give information back to like live production. What factors in the live production scheme are contributing to more woody breast in one flock versus another? Is it uh, is it the, the difference in shape because the those connective tissues and things that fill in those gaps cause the meat to hang differently when it's no, not necessarily. It's just that the more um, as the birds get bigger with more fillet breast fillet yield, mm-hmm. they have the higher probability to have more severe woody breast, and so when this when the birds have this u-shape that's hard to explain on a podcast mm-hmm. um but they those the breast fillet is more full and it carries throughout from the top of the the top of the fillet throughout the the end of the fillet um and and rather than losing a lot of yield on the end of the fillet it's carrying through um more so and and those generally will have a higher probability to be woody they're so growing well and mm-hmm. a lot of protein turnover during that process and and whatnot all right well uh thank you very much uh this has been interesting is there anything we haven't covered that you think would be important well i don't know that's a good question um i continue to love poultry meat and um look at ways to improve things as as uh we go and i'm just proponent for eating chicken so people shouldn't be afraid to eat chicken or um, be deterred by you know I'm sure having a negative eating experience in a restaurant can um, deter somebody to eat chicken again but um, or at that particular place or whatnot because of woody breast or whatnot but um, there's a lot of a lot of good quality products still out there I try a lot of chicken out there so that's what I'd heard somebody had told me that uh, you like to go around in, in uh try chicken sandwiches in different places kind of an informal survey right so chicken sandwiches are a big key product for uh, our industry and for fast food restaurants and so that this last spring and in the last year actually um or the last year or two there's been some chicken sandwich wars and part of that started with popeyes versus k or versus Mm chick-fil-a um and um that began a couple of years ago so the, there's been a quite a big increase in the number of chicken sandwiches in the marketplace. And so this past spring, I went on what I call the chicken sandwich tour and started trying <laughs> all the new ones because there was a lot of new ones that were coming out. And so uh-huh. I involved my class in that process um, and kind of pointed out all the positives of, th- of things. I, I didn't have any sandwiches I hated. Um, certainly there were some times that I thought they probably could have been better. Um, and I usually gave those products a second try, and they were, you know, just sometimes you go through a restaurant and, and you know, get as high quality as you want. Um, and it may just be that day or that shift or whatnot, but I had a lot of really good ones out there. So don't ask me my favorite one because I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a, your own little survey tour. So. Right. I all really right. just want to promote chicken, and um, mm. that's what I like to do with all my family and friends and, and whatnot. Oh, great. Dr. Owens, I sure do appreciate you being with us today and uh, keep up the good work because there are a lot of people out there, like myself included, who really enjoy chicken. And uh, we're always looking for the, you know, the best quality. And uh, I'm glad you're on the job. All right. Well, thank you for having me and um, keep eating chicken. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks. 
thank you to all of our faculty and staff for joining us on our first episode of the Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast. As always, please visit our research news website at aaes.uada.edu news to check out some of our other stories this month, including a story about how our Aroma 17 rice variety was a key ingredient in an award-winning gin produced by a Mississippi company, and a story about the state of weedy rice research. Just a reminder again, applications for the Center for Arkansas Farms and Food Apprenticeship Program close on December 1st, so be sure to visit caff.uada.edu to learn more and apply. Thanks again for joining us on the Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for more great episodes in the coming months. The Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast is produced by the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Visit aaes.uada.edu for more information.